You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. We are recording this on Saturday, February 5th. You are joined here today with Abby, and I've got back a very familiar guest. We've had him on a couple times already. We refer to him as the guru of the Golden Coast, but today he's here to talk about a very different market, uh, Hirsch Jane. Hirsch, how are you doing today, buddy? Hey, Abby. Great to be here and great to be back on. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. And, um, you know, um, our, our listeners are pretty familiar with your background over there. And you've been on here a couple of times. We've chatted about California. We did a deep dive in California. We talked about challenges in California. But today, you know, you've been doing some work in Arizona. And uh, I want to learn more about that market. So I want to bring you on here to chat about Arizona. Yeah, you know, really excited to, to talk about Arizona today. For sure, for sure, and I mean, look, Arizona's been—it's—it's um, it's been a pretty unique market. You know, we—I I think we haven't seen anything like it so far uh, in terms of um, success. But uh, this is why I wanted to bring you on here. Um, so, I mean, you know, Hirsch, why Arizona? Yeah, you know, I, I think we're talking about Arizona for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, it's just had a very successful rollout. You know, the the first year adult use sales have been have been very healthy. Um, Arizona has seen more, uh, you know, adult use sales in its first year than any other state, but, but California, you know, at, at 1.35 billion. Uh, and you know, that's, that's pretty remarkable considering that Arizona is a, a fairly small state. You know, it's a state of only 7 million people. Um, a lot of the states that border it, you know, already have legal cannabis. So it's not as if people are driving in from out of state, um, to purchase cannabis in Arizona. So the health of Arizona's first year adult use sales, you know, by itself, uh, deserves some attention, uh, particularly because it's a market that often doesn't get as much attention, you know, especially in, in the national media. Um, so I, I think that's the first reason we're, we're talking about it. But secondly, and, and, and perhaps more importantly, you know, <clears throat> this discussion is, is worth having because uh, there may be things that we can learn from Arizona. You know, and by we, I mean policymakers in the cannabis space, uh, investors thinking about where to invest in the cannabis space, um, operators thinking about where they want to operate you know, uh, across the country. And you know, Arizona has a, a pretty unique regulatory approach and you know, has just taken a really unique regulatory mentality. And so um, I, I think it's worth examining um, how this has contributed to Arizona's success and, and I'll just say that, you know, the backdrop for this conversation, what we all have to acknowledge is that many other adult use states have um, yet to live up to their actual promise. You know, um, there you were just alluding to, you know, the familiar stories about California's challenges. Um, there's the fact that New Jersey hasn't opened yet and the deadline has been pushed back again and again and again, even though it legalized cannabis on the same day as Arizona and Arizona is more than a year into its sales. Um but even states that people really like and are excited about, like Illinois and Michigan, um, you know, have really been impacted by severe delays or they have these big swaths of the state where you can't buy cannabis legally. And so that's really limiting the development um, of those industries. And so it's worth considering what lessons we can take uh, from um, Arizona as we approach, you know, cannabis regulation in other states. Gotcha. And, you know, I, you, you touched on a whole bunch of different things over there. The one thing that really piqued my interest and stood out was $1.35 billion mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in 2021. Those are staggering numbers. Yeah. Right. 
Um, so I mean, look, you, typically when, when, when we look at a state, um, you know, we like to look at various, we like to look at certain things. We always start from the top down. We look at licensing structures, regulatory framework. We like, we like to see if there's a black market, we like to see who the players are. We like to see how the, um, we like to see just, just, um, gauge of a little bit of a demographic look at neighboring states um so i mean with this one hirsch like how do you want to break this down like when you started this you know what like we kind of went over what caught your attention of it uh i'm assuming it has something to do with the 1.35 billion dollars in sales um so yeah i mean like you know what got you looking at arizona uh, yeah, you know, well, so I, I started, you know, paying attention to his, um, Arizona back in 2019 when, you know, I was a, a part of the, you know, the pretty large team that was working on the ballot initiative, uh, that was drafted to legalize adult use sales, uh, in, mm-hmm. in 2020. Um, and, you know, as we'll unpack during this conversation, I think there are a few things that, um, you know, have made Arizona really successful. Um, the first is a really unique licensing structure, um, especially compared to, uh, many of its, uh, peers along the West coast, Oregon, Washington, you know, California, um, et cetera. Um, the, the second is they've really taken an approach to taxation that bucks this national trend to be very extractive and punitive in your taxation methods and to, you know, try and extract every single dollar you can out of a, a cannabis business. Um, and the third is that the approach taken by, you know, the state regulatory agency in Arizona towards the industry um, is really unlike in any other state. And it's enabled a level of cooperation between the industry and regulatory agencies um, that is unprecedented and also created a speed to market for operationalizing, you know, a lot of these adult use businesses um, that is unprecedented. So um, we can kind of unpack that during um, this conversation, but I guess I'll just, you know, quickly say, uh, yeah, you know, Arizona did generate, you know, 1.35 billion in total sales between medical and adult use uh, in 2021. And, you know, it's important, I think, to note that the year one sales in Arizona were the same as the year two sales uh, in Illinois, um, which has, you know, almost twice the population or, you know, 70% more people. Um, And also uh, consider that Illinois is bordered by five prohibition states, and it has tons of people that drive into Illinois to purchase cannabis legally because they can't in their own state. Um, And so, you know, one third of sales in the Illinois cannabis market is to out-of-state residents. And so, you know, the only point there is we often talk about how Illinois is a very attractive uh, state for cannabis, um, which it is, but Arizona by those same metrics is an extremely attractive state and is really uh, performing well, especially given uh, its population. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you know, th- th- those are great, great points over there. So, you know, <laughs> we, we, we kind of went long there, but so we want to talk about the unique licensing structure, uh, the taxation approach that they've taken, as well as you, you mentioned something that was unprecedented, which is the fact that the regulatory agencies, um, the cooperation between the regulators and the entrepreneurs really, right. Mm-hmm. Um, before we kind of go into there, I want to also touch about what you just said about Illinois, Usually when you look at a state, you start looking at the, um, the, the state population and kind of work your way down, down from there. But you mentioned something very unique there where you said that, you know, Illinois borders is bordered by five prohibition states, which mm-hmm. is, you know, something that needs to be considered, uh, when, um, when, when taking a, when taking a, um, a, an approach to, to, to looking at a market, right? Because that, that population number that you look at doesn't necessarily mean that you're only limited to those population, to, to those people within the state, especially if they're bordering between prohibition states, which may not be the case for, uh, for, for Arizona, right? So that's yeah, 7 no. million. Yeah. Sorry. I'll, 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 I'll go there. 
No, no, you're, you're absolutely right, right? You know, that's been a big boost to the Illinois market. And, you know, a state like Arizona hasn't seen something like that. And yeah, we see that cross, you know, border phenomenon in, in many respects at the local and state level in cannabis. You know, the reason why dispensaries in eastern Washington and eastern Oregon do so well that are right on the Idaho border is, is for that same reason. You know, the, the same reason that the dispensaries in Illinois that, you know, um, you know, that are in metropolis, Illinois, right, right next to the Kentucky border or, you know, right near St. Louis uh, do really well. So, yeah, you know, what I take away from there is that that has been a boost to the Illinois market and probably will be for some period of time. Um, mm-hmm. Arizona hasn't been the same beneficiary of that, which makes right. its performance all the more impressive. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Arizona hasn't has been fortunate enough to 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 have a neighboring states that still have prohibition in cannabis, which is, that's actually very interesting to see, right? So a, a state with a population of 7 million people doing about 1.35 billion in sales. Um, let's talk about that. Let's, yeah. look, let's look into that, right? So I, I'm, I should I'm assuming... say they have New Mexico, but New Mexico is a really small state and it's just, you know, but, but so yeah. they do have one, pro, you know, prohibition state. Right, exactly. Yeah. One compared to five, you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it, it is what it is. I fully understand what you're saying there. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that, right? So that, I mean, the licensing structure there then definitely does play a very like integral part in terms of fueling these sales. So, you know, walk us through what the licensing structure looks like in Arizona. Yeah, we can we can break down each of these pieces. So uh, the, the first, as you mentioned, is the licensing structure. So um, Arizona is a vertically integrated, uh, limited license state. So first on, on the vertical inter- integration point, uh, I think it's just worth noting. It's interesting that Arizona is, you know, one of the only Western markets that has a vertical integration requirement. So in that way, it looks really different from states like California, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. And, you know, we can unpack in a second what kind of impact that has um, on the market. Um, it's important to note that Arizona has, I, I think, what you can think of as a soft vertical integration requirement. Um, so it's different than a state like Florida, in which um, you know retailers can carry products that are made by other uh, licensees. So there is um, a, a wholesale market. So it has it has a vertical integration requirement, um, but it's a little bit softer. And I'll also note, and again, we can we can unpack this in a second. It has this really unique phenomenon where you can sublease a license from another licensee. Um, it's it's really unique, and I haven't seen this um, in in really any other market in this way. Um, so so that's another unique aspect of of the licensing structure, which which we can you know walk through. So. That's one piece of it, right? So there's, you know, vertical integration. Um, the other piece is that it's a very limited license state. So there are 130 total licenses in Arizona. And it's worth noting that it's the only Western market, um, you know, unlike, again, like California, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, um, in which the number of licenses is, is set at the state level. Um, so it's very different than those neighbors. And um, this is actually because in November 2010, when Arizona passed a medical cannabis law, it tied the number of cannabis licenses to the number of pharmacies that existed in the state at that time. And so there were 1,300 pharmacies. And you know what this initiative said is that we're going to have one license for every 10 pharmacies. So that's actually why you know Arizona has um, 130 uh, licenses only. And because that was passed through a ballot initiative, that'll be very difficult um, to change. So um, it, it's a very limited license state, um, you know, compared to Oregon and Washington, which have, um, you know, smaller populations, you know, those, those, uh, you know, those states have a thousand stores, whereas Arizona has many fewer. And obviously, that's why um, Arizona stores are averaging, um, you know, $10 million um, a year. And, you know, that's why these licenses are very valuable. And so investors and operators who saw that early, who saw Mm -hmm. 
you know, in 2020 that Arizona was on the verge of passing an adult use initiative and identified, say, a, you know, um, you know, companies that had those licenses or acquired those licenses before they became a hotter commodity um, have obviously been um, been rewarded as a result of that. So, you know, there's much more we can say about the licensing structure, but, you know, maybe I'll just pause there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, look, look. Limited license states uh, have always been more attractive, right? They've always fared better, at least from 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 an investment perspective. What, what we've seen, so that's definitely one of the main contributing factors. Those thirteen hundred pharmacies that you're talking about, like, are they scattered throughout? Like, like, where, where where are they located? Are they scattered throughout the entire state? Are they more concentrated in densely populated areas? Uh, you know, they're scattered throughout the state, but also, you know, the Phoenix metro area is where a lot of the population is. So, um, you know, uh. Those, those, you know, those pharmacies are kind of located near population centers, but, you know, they're only relevant in that they place a cap on the number of licenses that can be issued. And Mm -hmm. I I think that's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of other states that are limited license, but that limited license framework hasn't passed through a ballot initiative. When something passes through like a statewide ballot initiative, it's generally more difficult to change. So people often talk about how the limited license framework um, in other states will eventually crumble to some extent. And I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. But it'll be interesting to see whether Arizona's will be more enduring in light of the fact that it just passed um, by by a ballot initiative. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, I, I should say, you know, just some some more things on the licensing structure. Um, so obviously it's a limited license state, which is, you know, very beneficial if you have some of those um, limited licenses. Um, I, I think what's interesting is, you know, the, the limited licensing structure arguably makes Arizona less likely to experience these really big wholesale price fluctuations that we're mm-hmm. seeing in other markets, right? We saw it in, in California where there was a ton of, um, you know, uh, cultivation licenses issued and not enough retail licenses. And when that supply demand equation got out of whack, then prices dropped, right? Um, precipitously. Uh, but in Arizona, over the first year of adult use sales, uh, wholesale pricing has been pretty stable between 1800 uh, a pound to 2000 a pound um, wholesale price. And, you know, I, I think that's in part because of, you know, uh, the supply demand equation is, is, is tied to the fixed number of statewide licenses um, that exist. Uh, right. So it's not as if you have a huge proliferation of cultivation licenses, for example. And I, I, I only mention that because, you know, this price instability tends to hurt smaller operators. And so there's many other states that have adopted a much more permissive licensing structure. And I get why. Right. To create more opportunity to participate in the cannabis industry. But when you don't think about how the supply demand equation is going to play out, uh, prices can be very unstable. And um, this at least has seemed to have disproportionately hurt hurt smaller operators, right? So the stories about the operators in the Oregon and the California market who have just been swallowed up by those regulatory dynamics. And so, um, yeah, that's just one thing as a policymaker, I think is, is worth paying attention to when it, when it comes to Arizona. Gotcha. And, th- and that makes sense. So, so let, let, let's let's dive into that 130 licenses over there. So typically, you know, you, you did mention that they're vertically integrated licenses. Um, are they from seed to sale or the, obviously there's dispensary cultivation, manufacturing, processing? Um, how did that how does that break down? Yeah. So, you know, there's 130 licenses and it's interesting. So if you have a license, it's technically called a dispensary license, right? But that dispensary license enables you to do other activities, right? So Mm -hmm. um, if you have a dispensary license, then you can, but you don't have to do things like cultivation and manufacturing. And uh, right now, I think about of the 130 licenses, um, 100 of them actually have, you know, a fully built out offsite offsite and operational cultivation, but not all of them are built out. Um, And, you know, if you think about a company like Harvest, 
exist now truly that has 19 of those 130 licenses, you know, they don't use each of their 19 cultivation and manufacturing facilities in, in a fully built out way. And so that um, having one of those 130 dispensary licenses entitles you to do other things like cultivation and manufacturing, but not not everyone has made those investments um, uh, there to, to build those out uh, fully. They can rely on their other licenses. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that, that I should say is that there are these 130 licenses, but there's actually 39 more licenses um, that, that have been issued and will be issued. And this was the result of the adult use ballot initiative in, in 2020. And so 13 of these licenses will go to um, what are considered underserved areas, right? So where there aren't a ton of cannabis dispensaries. And, um, you know, these licenses have been issued, but these stores haven't opened yet. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about growth drivers for Arizona later in the episode, but that'll be one of the growth drivers is when these, you know, dispensaries open up in underserved areas. And mm-hmm. also as a policymaker, I think that's, you know, important to pay attention to. It helps prevent these cannabis deserts that exist in other states like California and Michigan, right? The fact that the city of Detroit has no adult use dispensaries, for example. So just as, as, a, as a policy, um, you know, as a policy move, I think that makes sense. And in addition to these 13, there'll be 26, um, you know, social equity licenses that'll be issued later this year and that'll come online next year. So just wanted to mention that in addition to these 130 grandfathered in operators that, you know, have really been just a huge beneficiary of, um, you know, this quick transition to adult use. Um, there's also these additional licenses that will come online and that, um, you know, will help broaden the market and um, also help the market grow. Gotcha. Gotcha. So just, just a couple of questions are coming as, as you're sort of um, sh- like framing out the licensing framework over there. Um, of those 130 licenses, uh, do you know how many, so it's just a dispensary license. They're, they're all called dispensary licenses. You can do anything you want with them. Uh, are there any restrictions? Like, is there a canopy cap? Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things in Arizona, and I think this could be one of the risks for the market is there's actually not a limit on the, how much you can build out your cultivation. And if you think about that, that could create the risk of oversupply, right? If, if one mm-hmm. of those facilities was, was, was really built out, um, thus far, I, you know, I, I, that hasn't seemed to have impacted pricing in the Arizona market, but it is interesting. Unlike many other States, there isn't really a limit on those on that facility size. On the other hand, if you think about it, like this could be something of an opportunity, right? So we often talk about interstate commerce and, you know, the thing that many people say, and I believe this as well, is that a state like California will be the beneficiary of of interstate commerce whenever it comes, right? Even if it's Mm -hmm. uh, many years from now, but I, you know, that's not necessarily a given. And so if you compare and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about taxes in a second, but if you compare the fact that California has a cultivation tax and Arizona does not have a cultivation tax, um, and the fact that Arizona might allow you to build out your operation in a much more um, robust way, um, and that you don't have to deal with say CEQA, right? The, the environmental laws that you have to deal with in California, um, Mm -hmm. Arizona, right. Um, could, could be sort of a, a seat for, for interstate commerce. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned this in part because, you know, there's, you know, a lot of big operators are, are planting flags in a major way in Arizona, you know, particularly a company like Truly that are really making investments here and are, are seeing it as, as part of their hub and smoke model. So um, to, to answer your original question, those those facilities can can get really big, unlike in other gotcha. states. Gotcha, gotcha. And then so the, I guess this is not really a licensing cap. But like, the question that I have for you is like, is there a cap in terms of the amount of licenses you can own? Because you, you know, Harvest had 19, which is now Truly. Um, 
you know, can somebody just start coming up and start buying up all these licenses if they can find them for sale? I, I not, I don't think there's any constraint on the number as, as you mentioned, right? Um, True Leaf has 19, uh, Cure Leaf now has, has 16 of them. So um, there, there isn't really a, a restriction um, on that number. It may not make sense after a certain point for a company to own all of those licenses and they might mm-hmm. want to invest in other things, right? Like building out their brands. I think for instance, what, what True Leaf is really doing right now with Harvest is figuring out how to merge their brand portfolios and figuring out what brand port, you know, combination of their two robust brand portfolios will be most competitive in each state, including Arizona. So that might be where they choose to invest their capital. But um, we have seen right recently, uh, TrueLeaf and CureLeaf make additional investments in the state, you know, even in in, in recent months, which Mm -hmm. again, I think is evidence of how attractive it is to, to many larger operators. Yeah, no, I, I was just kind of getting at like if a smaller operator wanted to enter in, it seems like they've got their work cut out for them. It might be dip, more difficult to enter in, into the Arizona market if you were an, like a, a smaller operator today. Um, it, uh, like, get, sorry, go ahead. No, absolutely. One thing I, I will mention. So yeah, you know, it's you have to get one of those limited licenses, but Arizona also has this weird quirk of subleasing. Um, yeah. And so it, it's, it's a really backdoor method of entering the Arizona market. And so you can essentially sublease space in someone else's large cultivation or manufacturing facility, which can allow out-of-state brands or, you know, brands in Arizona uh, to, to tap into to the market. And, you know, I, I do know that Harvest has has done this, you know, um, for years, you know, um, to at least 20 different brands and, and cultivators. And, you know, that's a, a decent way to generate additional revenue by um, subleasing out part of the space that you have as a licensee. So if I was to sublease, like I don't need to be a license holder, I can just contact a license holder. Like let's say if you're a license holder, like, hey, Hirsch, I want to start manufacturing or I want to start cultivating your facility. Could I sublease a space? And you could be like, hey, Abby, go ahead. Yeah, you could do that. And, you know, operators have charged, you know, between 30 and $75,000 a month, right, which is some cash flow uh, for this. Um, I know some operators in Arizona choose not to do this because of the potential liability, right? If I if I allow you to use my facility, and there's some non-compliant activity that happens, I assume the liability, and I could lose the license. Um, I might also not want to, you know, support a potential competitor and give you access to the market. But um, I do know that of the 130 license holders, you know, about 50 of them um, have done some form of this subleasing um, in in previous years, which again is, is pretty unique when compared to other states. Yeah, because when I when I think about this, um, you know, as you were chatting, I was thinking, okay, well, there's not a canopy cap. There's also not a license, like the number of licenses I could own. That kind of gives way for sort of uh, a company to build out a monopoly, right? And then as you're talking about the subleasing thing, okay, there's now backdoor ways for me to sort of get in. That kind of that kind of goes on the other end of the spectrum where, yes, we're not having license dilution with more and more uh, companies attaining licenses or more and more uh, incumbents attaining licenses. But if I could sublease and I can start making deals with a whole bunch of people, is there a risk of quote-unquote license dilution through the backdoor method? Uh, I don't know, maybe in the abstract, but I think these licenses are, you know, still so valuable and command such like significant um, portion of the market and the environment for legal cannabis, which we'll talk about in a second from a tax perspective is so favorable that um, that wouldn't be a, a, a major concern of mine. Gotcha. Okay. And then these 39 licenses, these new licenses that are coming online, when, when are they coming online? I know you mentioned that they're in underserved areas. Uh, do these licenses have the exact same rights as the original 130? They do. Yeah. And so the, the 13, 13 of those licenses are in underserved areas. And so these are rural parts of Arizona that don't have access to dispensaries. And again, I think it's just really interesting because these cannabis deserts exist in other states, but we don't think about access in the same way. In other states, we prioritize the rights of local municipalities over the rights of 
people to access a legal product, you know, reasonably, which obviously just, you know, s supports the illegal market. So 13 of them um, will go to underserved areas and then 26 will go to social equity applicants. And um, that um, the, the equity licenses have not yet been handed out. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and earlier you sort of stated out methodically how they came up with that 130 licenses, right? There's 1300 pharmacies. They said, let's do a one to 10 ratio came out with uh, 130. How did they come up with these 39 more licenses? Um, they, um, you know, that's a good question. I think, you know, 26 is 20% of, of, of 130, right? And so they knew they wanted to oh, okay. issue additional licenses, right, as part of the initiative. So that, that was a piece of this. How they came mm -hmm. up with 13, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think that was just the number of counties, you know, as part of the regulations there, um, you know, uh, there, there was a sort of a number of counties identified that didn't have enough access to legal cannabis. Gotcha. I, I thought you were just going to say, hey, like 13 is one tenth of, you know, 130. So they probably just get the same ratio, but who knows, right? I'm just mm -hmm. speculating. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing uh, that I was going to ask you, uh, can municipalities opt out of cannabis there? Like, do you know how we can, how we saw that in, in California? Yeah, you know, they can opt out of cannabis, but what's interesting is because the number of licenses are fixed, uh, if a municipality opts out of cannabis, it potentially loses out on the future ability to have a cannabis business, right, um, in its city and obtain that tax revenue. And so in that way, it's different from a state like California, where a city can say to itself, oh, I can always opt back in later. And so in some ways, I think it changes the incentives because a city wants a cannabis business to locate in its town because there's a, a finite number of licenses there. Um, and so there are certainly cities in Arizona that are more conservative and have said no to cannabis businesses for sure, but you don't mm -hmm. see um, that same level of opting out as you do in California, right? Which, um, which is obviously pretty severe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So the next thing that I kind of have going back and just, just to sort of wrap it up here on, on the, uh, the licensing um, structure is that, okay, so let's say if you've got, uh, you got one of these dispensary licenses, uh, I can do cultivation, I can do manufacturing, I don't need a distribution license that, that's sort of covered within this license, and I can get a dispensary license, I can build all this out. Are there any limitations in terms of products in Arizona? In like, is there is ed are edibles allowed or uh, uh, vape cards, etc, all this, like, I know I've seen it all on the, uh, the, uh, like, so some of the dispensaries that I've gone on. Uh, but like, is there, sometimes you miss one, right? You could be like, hey, like sublinguals are allowed. Are there any constraints in terms of the SKUs or the products that you can have on the shelf? No, there are no major product restrictions. I would say, you know, just like a bunch of other adult use states, there are limits on packaging and labeling and, and dosage, et cetera. But mm -hmm. um, it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a it's an adult use state that has a, a really robust set of product offerings. I think that the medical, the fact that the medical market has existed for so long, right, has, has sort of like normalized a lot of different product categories. So yeah, products are widely available um, in, in Arizona. And, you know, it features a lot of really exciting brands that I'm sure we can talk about later, you know, brands like Venom Extracts, uh, for mm -hmm. example, or, or Sublime. And there are often brands from California that are thinking about, you know, trying to penetrate the um, Arizona market and, and vice versa. So I think there's a little bit of cultural uh, cross-pollination that goes on there. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, so look, we look at 130 licenses. So there's a couple coming that are coming online. It's a smallish state, seven million people. Um, you know, you, you talked about the, uh, the 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 dense populations in the urban centers. Um, what's tourism like in Arizona? I know Scottsdale's pretty pretty like awesome for for golf and does attract a lot of people. And you know, you, you did talk about it, but like, do we know? Do you know how many tourists sort of 
go through Arizona a year? I don't know that number off the top of my head, but I, I know that it's one of the bigger tourist markets in the United States. Um, as you mentioned, people go to Arizona to golf. You know, spring training um, is in Arizona for baseball, for baseball fans. So a lot of people mm-hmm. go there. Um, Arizona uh, during the winter, right, has a really hospitable uh, climate. Um, it has a lot of natural beauty, right, the Grand Canyons and and, and other things. So yeah, t- mm-hmm. tourism um, is, is a big driver of economic activity uh, in Arizona for sure. What one weird, like random fact that I found out about Arizona, I found this a long time ago because cocky's massive here in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Arizona or Phoenix actually has a really good like hockey program, like a hockey camp. Austin Matthews came out of there. I think Gretzky came, came down there. So it, it was just really weird because it's in the middle of the desert, right? And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of great hockey players have come out of there. So uh, yeah. You know, that probably contributes. And yeah, I, so. I should also say that Arizona tries to encourage tourism. So before I worked in cannabis, I actually worked uh, in Airbnb, you know, working on short-term rental policy across the country. And Arizona um, had one of the more permissive um, short-term rental frameworks because it wanted to encourage tourism, you know, and in that way, it's actually quite similar to to Florida. And um, so, you know, that same political culture, by the way, bleeds into how it regulates cannabis, um, which we can talk about. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then last thing on this subleasing stuff, because it is pretty unique, like, how does that typically work? Like, what's the cost like? If I if I was to sublease a, a part of a license, you know, have you seen any deals that get structured that, like that way? Like, do I pay an upfront fee and I get a certain square footage amount, or is it like, hey, because this license allows for unlimited canopy, you know, we can just get one license, I can pay you a fixed fee, and I can just have a massive canopy that I start growing out of. Yeah. So, you know, I, it generally contains a, a fixed square footage amount. And, you know, the, the figures that I've seen is that the cost is, you know, between 30 and $75,000 um, a month, you know, depending on how much space uh, that you're taking up. And so that's how I've, I've seen these deals look. But again, there's some other folks who um, pass on these deals because they don't want to assume the liability of subleasing um, part of their license to someone who, you know, they may not know that well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So this is a, this is unique is a, a proper word to use for the licensing structure because of that subleasing model. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned they've taken a very favorable approach to taxes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You, I, I think, I don't know if it was on this, this podcast, like, sorry, on like on this recording or if when you and I were chatting earlier on, you had mentioned that in most States, they, they, they've sort of looked at cannabis um, companies uh, and tax them in, through more of like a punitive lens, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, we're giving you access here. You're, this is a technically illegal product. We're just going to tax you quite heavily. Arizona, not taking that stance, doing it very different. Can you kind of touch on that? Yeah, I mean, other states have just used a much more extractive model of taxation, but Arizona has taken um, a very different tack. Um, it has a, a very different tax model. So the first thing is that Arizona doesn't have a cultivation tax. And so that's what makes it different uh, than California, which has a, um, you know, a, a very heavy uh, cultivation tax. So that's, gotcha. that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is local taxation. So, you know, local, the local cannabis excise tax in, in Arizona, excuse me, is generally around 2%, whereas other states, you know, um, have local taxes of 8 to 10%. So mm-hmm. again, just much lower taxes at, at the local level. Uh, the third thing is that the sales tax is much lower in Arizona. So, you know, the, the sales tax in Arizona is about 5.5%. Um, that's about 3% higher <clears throat> in California. But the, the fourth, and I think the, the most important thing is that, you know, there is an excise tax for, um, for adult use customers, um, but there is actually a 0% excise tax um, for medical patients. And so that, that is huge. And all of those mm-hmm. things in, in combination just makes it a much more favorable, um, you know, to, to purchase from the legal market than in other states. And, you know, on, on, the, on the 0% excise tax for, for medical patients, you know, first, I think there's a strong moral argument for that. You know, people shouldn't be taxed in obtaining medicine. Um, but it's also a really good way to, uh, you know, um, 
preserve the integrity of the medical program and visibility into it. In California, the medical program has just vanished because there isn't really an incentive for people to have a medical card anymore. But in Arizona, just the opposite is true. The medical market remains really robust because people have an incentive to hold on to their medical card. So, so that's really good. And then, you know, it also helps manage the illicit market. You know, in, in California, there's a huge universe of medical patients that have gone back to the illegal market because of the taxes. And you don't see that in Arizona where medical uh, sales have, have remained fairly stable. So here mm-hmm. it's, it's actually a pretty simple story. You know, tax policy in Arizona was designed in a way to make legal businesses competitive um, with uh, the illegal market. And, you know, I'm sure an illegal market still exists to some extent in Arizona, as it does in every state in this country, even very mature states like Colorado. But um, you don't hear about it as much because the, you know, the incentive to purchase from the illegal market really isn't that significant. I can get way better products and I'm not really paying that much in taxes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially compared to other goods. So, yeah, a very different model. So... The medical and the and so there's no rec. Sorry, there's there's no medical tax, but there's a 16% excise tax for rec or mm-hmm. adult use, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of licensing, like how do you know if you're in a medical dispensary or I think you called it pharmacies? How do you know if you're in a um, mm-hmm. uh, medical pharmacy or a uh, rec dispensary? Well, uh, you know, generally, you know, most operators have both a medical and an adult use license, and then if you're a medical customer, then you are eligible, right, um, to purchase right. cannabis without without paying any tax. But the vast majority, you know, these all licensees had their medical license beforehand and then obtained um, their adult use license uh, after that. So, but are, are there different product SKUs? Uh, that are available to different patients, yes, and there yeah. are also different, you know, concentration limits, you know, just like there there are in in other states, you know, and and daily sales limits, uh, et cetera. Gotcha. And is this under the same, like if I have one of those 130 licenses, I can choose to have medical product and rec product? Uh, yes. So if you're one of those 130 licenses, you have a medical license and almost all of them at this point, I think all of them have, have converted to to uh, adult use. And so, you know, they may cater to, to different demographics, but yeah, they generally have dual licenses. Okay. Gotcha. So it's not like there's another set of, cl- another class of licenses that you need to get to have the the, the medical one. Um, and, and is there any restrictions in terms of products on the medical license? Um, not, not that I know of. Um, yeah. Hmm. Cause the, the more and more like, you know, as we're chatting about it, it really seems to make sense to just keep a medical license, um, or get a medical card, right? Cause you, uh, you got access to the same products. You're going to the same dispensaries. You don't have to pay taxes. I guess you have a, a fee to keep your medical card. Yeah. Um, but, but it. it does make sense. I mean, there were 300, there were 300,000 patients registered in Arizona around the time the adult use initiative passed. Um, and that's 4% um, of the population, which is, uh, you know, a very high percentage. And the vast majority of those folks have remained registered because there's a strong incentive uh, to do so. And so it gives you visibility into, you know, people who are using cannabis for more medical purposes, which is also good um, from a public policy perspective. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that makes a lot of sense, too. And um, yeah, and you know, I, I think it's, it's helped, you know, explain, you know, the success of the industry. We talked about the licensing structure and how that is very favorable. The tax environment's very favorable. But it's also interesting to think about whether that will, you know, be beneficial for Arizona in the future in the context of a more you know, um, interstate market, right? Um, will its products be more competitive because it doesn't impose a cultivation tax, for example, if it can build out some, some really good brands. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, so you said when we we first started, so unique licensing, unique licensing structure, a very, um, favorable tax, a taxation approach. And then the cooperation between regulators and the, uh, incumbents or the entrepreneurs, um, Let's talk about that. What did you mean by that? 
Uh, yeah, so I think this is maybe the most interesting part of the conversation, which is that, um, you know, Arizona just has a very different regulatory uh, culture. And so, you know, just the first thing to note is that, you know, Arizona is one of five ballot initiatives that passed in the November 2020 elections. There was Arizona, um, but a bunch of other states uh, legalized cannabis for adult use. You know, there was Montana, there was New Jersey, um, there was South Dakota, and then Mississippi also uh, legalized uh, cannabis for, for medical purposes, right? So they all mm-hmm. legalized cannabis on um, on the same day. And, you know, I, I think it's important to note that many of the other markets have experienced a severe delays. So Montana is the only other state that has started adult use sales, and it just started adult use sales last month uh, in January. Um, New Jersey was supposed to start in August of 2021. Um, then that deadline was pushed back to February of 2022. Um, now that deadline's been pushed back again. There's some optimism that sales might start in April, but I could see it starting as as late as the summer. Um, I'd love to be proved wrong about that, but there have just been repeated mm-hmm. delays in New Jersey. And then, you know, uh, Mississippi and South Dakota, their ballot initiatives were invalidated. And, you know, just to quickly touch on that, I think that's important to note. You know, we are seeing uh, ballot initiatives to legalize cannabis being invalidated by state Supreme Courts at a pretty rapid rate. You know, those are two examples. And that's important for the cannabis industry to be mindful of because there's a bunch of ballot initiatives we could see in November 2022, you know, in places like Arkansas and Maryland and, you know, Missouri and Ohio and Oklahoma mm-hmm. and other states. And so whether those initiatives are invalidated will have a huge impact on, you know, the TAM for U.S. cannabis uh, over the next couple of years. So just just that, I think, is something to pay attention to. But, um, but you know, so as we noted, New Jersey's been repeatedly delayed. Montana just came online. But Arizona's program got up and running within two and a half months. You know, mm-hmm. adult use sales were, you know, approved on January 22nd. And that was, you know, Joe Biden's third day in office, right? And so the same day he, you know, was elected was the same day the ballot initiative passed. So so, so that's pretty, pretty remarkable. And, um, you know, we should note that this isn't new. You know, when Arizona passed its medical cannabis program back in November 2010, um, that pro- program was operational already by, by the following year. And so, um, you know, Arizona got its program up and running within two and a half months, and we can unpack some of the reasons why. But that speed to market is a big reason why the rollout has been uh, so successful. Yeah, and and that's a good way to sort of you know curb the uh, the black market, right? You know, the late the longer and longer you delay these processes, you're adding more fuel to the fire for the black market. And the, the black market gets a lot stronger, and we see how hard it is to actually convert people from the black market to the legal market. Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever I hear a regulator say, you know, we're not doing this fast, we're doing it right, it just begs the question. You know, in the context of a market where cannabis has been decriminalized, like, you know, speed is relevant, you know, um, that, you know, one, one aspect of doing it wrong is taking a really long time because it just emboldens the illicit market. And so obviously, you know, we all agree that we want to decriminalize cannabis, but when you do it and you don't set up a legal framework for years, you're just, you know, to state the obvious, ceding all that territory to the illegal market, which is in no one's interest and cannot possibly be understood as doing it right. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, I mean, that's probably one of the messages that you'd give to the, um, the, uh, what do you call it? The, the five states that have their um, rec- adult use on the ballot for November 2022 eh? is speed to market. Yeah. I mean, I, I think particularly, and, and, and again, I'm sure we can we can discuss this further, but, you know, Ohio, um, you know, states like Ohio and Missouri that have really robust medical markets that have limited license models, if they can follow mm-hmm. the Arizona model and quickly transition to adult use, that could be really beneficial for the growth of U.S. cannabis over the next couple of years, right? Those aren't small states, you know, especially a state like Ohio. And so, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, I think those states are, you know, even a state like Arkansas, uh, for example, right, with its 40 licenses, if it can do a, a speedy transition to adult use, obviously, it's a smaller state, but those small states can have impact. And I think what we've seen is that even these big states that have a strong cultural association with cannabis, if the rollout, you know, takes years or isn't managed effectively, they don't reach their, their full potential. So gotcha. And, and how did Arizona get to market so quickly? Like two and a half months is like, is it's, it's, like no time whatsoever, especially uh, during December, right? Because that's when, <clears throat> excuse me, that that's when like it, it was um, legalized or sorry, it was approved in November, and then you said by mid January, yeah, you had uh, adult use sales. So like, how did they? Were, were were there already applications put in place? Like who you know, who did they give those licenses to? Like it, two and a half months seems like no time whatsoever. So like, let's say if a state like Ohio and Missouri were to, were, to, were to do this, you know, they could they could point to Arizona as a as a poster child for doing it right, right, as opposed to the other ones, but like, like you know, mm-hmm. what worked for them? Yeah, so you know, adult use sales started on January twenty second, right? So it took two and a half months. Um, you know, the the medical licensees were grandfathered into adult use shortly after the initiative passed by you know an overwhelming margin. Um, mm-hmm. The existing licensees were able to submit applications to DHS, right, the Department of of Health Services. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, speed to market was really built into the initiative. This was a really big part of the conversation back in 2019 when this initiative was being drafted, that speed to market was extremely important. And I think most Mm -hmm. licensees anticipated that these um, that speed to market meant that, you know, these businesses would transition to adult use in May. Right. Which is a great goal. But the regulators, um, you know, surprised everyone and approved these applications uh, in January. And I I Mm -hmm. think the Department of Health Services in Arizona deserves a lot of credit. And what is interesting is, you know, this is a pre existing agency, right? So in many other states that have legalized adult use, we have created these new bureaucracies, right? And spent a lot of time like creating commissions, right? And different agencies to administer these processes. But this is a pre-existing agency in Arizona that does a bunch of different things. And, you know, it's the guy, Don Arrington, who who, who leads it, right? Has been at that agency for 20 years. It's sort of a, a, a true re- regulator. And um, I just think that's an interesting contrast to the way that agencies are being set up in other states, which often mm-hmm. take a very, very, very long time time where we design these elaborate bureaucracies and then, you know, the results have been uh, mixed at best. And, um, you know, what I think is interesting is that, you know, the Arizona Dispensaries Association, which is, you know, one of the main trade groups um, in Arizona, um, describes the DHS as a partner uh, in compliance. And that is actually really striking if you compare that to the relationship between regulators and operators (laughs) in other states. You know, just this week, there's an op-ed where the the chief regulator in Washington is calling the head trade group a liar, right? I mean, you know, there's the big recall that just happened in Pennsylvania. And so Mm. it's just remarkable. And you know, I, I think th- that partnership, that working relationship is in the interest of all of the stakeholders in the cannabis industry, but we still retain this old war on drugs mentality when it comes to regulation. And that's preventing a lot of these industries from reaching their full potential, I think. And yeah, and, and you know, we, we've chatted on this in the past, but you, I think you mentioned to me that um, the speed to market strategy has been with Arizona from, from the beginning, even during the medical, like when they originally did the medical license. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, they, they just implemented their program really quickly. And I just point that out because it contrasts with the experience a lot of us saw in California yeah. where, where um, you know, uh, Prop 215 was passed in 96. And then the state government for years did everything it could to, to thwart it. Right. Um, and so just a, a really big difference between what happened following those democratic votes of the people. 
you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. So I mean, like, look, we look, we look at this, right? We've got a unique licensing structure with 130 licenses. We've got like a, a very favorable taxation approach with zero percent uh, taxes on medical. Uh, there are some on on recreational, and then the the fact that the regulators and the the, the fact that the operators see um, uh, the compliant like the regulators as as partners is mm-hmm. really good, and too, and then. Yeah, go ahead. No, ab- absolutely. You're right. Those are all factors. I mean, to be fair, right? Uh, one one has to admit that Arizona had a really robust medical infrastructure and program, right? Going into the adult use vote, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the program was almost 10 years old. These 130 licenses had existed for a while and knew what they were doing, which allows a regulator to quickly turn on adult use. You know, there was 300,000 medical patients when the initiative passed, which is is very healthy. And so Arizona had a really robust uh, medical market, but the, still the transition to adult use um, w- was really seamless. And um, so so I, I think that's important to note. And, you know, I'll also just say this is this is very important for the industry to, to remember, as many other adult use markets, you know, have been impacted by severe delays and, and, and limited their, their market growth. So. So Hirsch, I mean, like, look, these are all great things about Arizona. I think the speed to market thing is definitely something that um, that we we've sort of hammered home on over here, and, and you know, you, like Arizona does take deserve a lot of credit for this. I mean, you know, what would you say to the other markets that are sort of looking at Arizona? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's important for the industry to take note of of the speed to market because many other adult use markets have been impacted by severe delays, which has really you know crippled their market growth and 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 ceded a lot of ground to the illicit market. So, you know, California is one example, you know, stores often take, you know, two to three years after um, licenses are are issued and um, to open after licenses are issued. And so, you know, California often cites the importance of, of social equity, but, you know, the amount of time it takes to open a store just cripples small operators who can't sustain um, this cost. Um, and it also makes these assets really distressed, which enables consolidation by larger players, which which California allegedly doesn't want. And so, you know, that's just one example of how, you know, the the delays are preventing cities from reaching their goals. Um, mm-hmm. a, another example of this is Illinois. You know, the 185 uh, retail licenses have been caught up in a lawsuit um, that has no end in sight. And again, a lot of those equity applicants um, are being bankrupt, bankrupted. And so that's flatlined a lot of the growth um, in, in the state. And so Illinois is another example, just like California, which passed a law with great fanfare, but the implementation of that law just hasn't really uh, worked out. And, you know, a, a, you know, another example is, is New Jersey. You know, it's been 15 months since uh, voters voted to legalize cannabis there. And um, it, it, there's been very little progress. And, um, you know, uh, the governor said a few weeks ago that, um, you know, again, they want to do it fast. Uh, you know, they don't want to do it fast. They want to do it right. Um, but, you know, it took the state 14 months to sign a contract uh, with metric. Um, and so, uh, you know, the idea that they are trying to do it right just isn't really all that credible. And for, you know, a period of time, New Jersey regulators were blaming this on a lack of supply by operators. But 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 that's just just sort of false. And so, um, you know, again, just a, a lot of different examples of states that have passed headline grabbing efforts to legalize cannabis without any real focus on implementation. And that's because headlines are more in the interest of elected officials, but implementation isn't as sexy. And it's just Mm -hmm. interesting that Arizona took just the opposite tack. And that's the reason why it's been successful. And one of the great things about cannabis is you can look at these different models and experiments play out and either try and shape policy for the better or think about how effectively a state is likely to implement when it makes the transition to adult use as you are, you know, making decisions as an operator or as an investor. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, if we see one of those, uh, those five states that we talked about earlier who have November 22, uh, who have the adult use on the November ballot here, if we hear 
do it right, not fast. That's a red flag. <laughs> uh, I, I think it should be a little bit because that's yeah. said a lot in cannabis and, and it's not really uh, credible. And um, mm-hmm. as you said, Abby, you know, there are several other states like Arizona, states that I would describe as, you know, limited license states that have uh, robust medical markets that are kind of purplish states um, politically that are highly likely to legalize in the next 12 to 24 months. And they have the opportunity to follow Arizona's example regarding speed to market. You know, so there's a state like Ohio that will um, likely see a ballot initiative in November 2022 that has a medical market that is just growing, that is, you know, limited license. It, it has 57 licenses and is going to add 73. So it's going to have 130. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's a, a market that could follow in um, Arizona's footsteps and have a very successful program over the next few years. And so it'll be interesting to think about, say, the M&A activity um, in that state. Or, you know, Missouri is another example of this, where they have 192 licenses that they've issued that are split across, you know, their eight congressional districts, um, and it's a limited license state. You know, it has a medical program that's gaining a lot of steam and is, you know, just getting stronger by the month, um, and they're likely to see a ballot initiative. And again, you know, it's, it's sort of a swing state and could implement this a little bit uh, more efficiently. And then, you know, there's a state like Pennsylvania that has a very robust medical program and, you know, seems increasingly uh, likely to legalize and you know, the MSOs have already planted their flag there in in expectation and anticipation of that. So it's mm-hmm. interesting to think about how both investors and operators can anticipate where other opportunities might exist that follow Arizona's um, model. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. It's true. It's definitely uh, something that should be kept kept a close eye on. And like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if how, how, how close you are to those to those states or how much research you've done in them. Like, do you have any color on sort of the other Ohio, Missouri, or Pennsylvania, like what their thoughts for for the adult use um, states are going to look like? Like, do you, like are they leaning more towards hey, let's go fast, or are they leaning more towards hey, let's do this right? Uh, I think it's it's probably pretty early to say, but I think the political cultures in those states may ene- enable a more quick um, implementation. Um, there's there's some states where there's like competing ballot initiatives, so there's different paths that a, a state might uh, take. Um, but I think there's there's good reason to be confident in states like Ohio and in Missouri that um, they will see ballot initiatives, pass those ballot initiatives, and try to implement those uh, relatively quickly. Gotcha, gotcha. So basically, um, bottom line, you know, we want to talk about the overregulation being like a, a, a bad part over there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'll have to see, but you know, I guess the hope is that a lot of other states will learn from from their counterparts, and you know, that's when American democracy works at its best, right? When we have these laboratories mm-hmm. of democracy. So we'll we'll have to see, but I think what you will see is that this will become a bigger part of the conversation. That what makes a cannabis market attractive is not just its size or like you know the, its cultural affiliation with cannabis, as New York mm-hmm. is, but just these different regulatory models that are are playing out. And I think this will become part of the cannabis discourse, which is good, right? So we can figure out better ways to to regulate this to achieve the outcomes uh, that we want to. And um, you know, one more thing that I'll I'll just say about the Arizona ballot initiative and, and what we can take from it from as it pertains to other states is, you know, um, the Arizona initiative was a really good snapshot of how quickly attitudes um, on cannabis are changing. In 2016, Arizona had an adult use ballot initiative that got about 48 percent of the vote. In 2020, just four years later, um, it had a ballot initiative that got 60% of the vote, which is just a massive swing in in only four Mm -hmm. years. And so that shows you 
how quickly attitudes are changing. And, you know, secondly, it's worth noting that, you know, that cannabis ballot initiative probably pushed Biden over Trump um, in Arizona in, in 2020. You know, um, President Biden won by the narrowest of margins. Um, and, you know, the ballot initiative, as it generally does, tends to spur more uh, progressive turnout. And, you know, you know, even members of Congress have said this, like Earl Blumenauer. And so I think the great irony of Joe Biden doing nothing on cannabis as president is that I don't think he would have won Arizona without that ballot initiative, which, of course, he didn't endorse. And if he didn't win Arizona, then I think that that quote unquote contested election um, can get mm -hmm. much more dicey. And so I think this just shows how much attitudes on cannabis are changing and how cannabis can impact national politics in a, in a pretty huge way. And so, for example, Florida, which is likely to see a ballot initiative in 2024, is a perpetual swing state. And, um, mm -hmm. be, you know, that it'll be interesting to see how that initiative might impact, um, you know, uh, elections. Uh, yeah, and that makes sense. And, and there, there was one thing that you said earlier that I really want that I really liked, and I just think it's worth re uh, repeating, um, was the fact that you said, "Hey, listen, when 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 we look at our market now, we can't just look at we can't just look at the population. We can't just look at the the cannabis culture. We have to start taking the regulatory framework a lot more seriously." And I agree. I could not agree with you more on that. Um, just given n now, at least like you know, in twenty twenty two here, um, just given everything that. Um, we've seen in cannabis, right? We couldn't have obviously said this way before, but um, the the legal regulatory framework can kind of either like grow or kill an industry, right? We, we saw it in Canada, we saw it in California. Um, so I, I think it was it was just something that you mentioned that I think needs to be re restated because it, it's a it's a it's a it's a really strong point. Yeah, it can just have a huge impact on the health of the market, whether the legal market can gain an upper hand over the illegal market, whether it's possible sure. to run operations profitably, you know, whether you are paying rent on an empty storefront for years, right, and are just mm -hmm. bleeding. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And I'll just note again that, you know, some of the models that have been adopted in the name, I think, of you know, promoting, uh, you know, greater participation in the cannabis industry have hurt the very people that they've been intended to benefit. And so again, I think that that demands scrutiny on our part. It's not enough to say we've passed a law that aspires to do X, you know, what are the results of that regulatory framework you've adopted? And has mm -hmm. have has it, you know, it achieved its intended results? And if not, then, we, you know, th that regulatory framework has to be held accountable, and we have to take a different approach. Gotcha. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and it's true. And it's true. I mean, look, so we've got, we've done in this episode, we're about an hour or almost an hour. And we've really looked at Arizona um, or you've really looked at Arizona th through a very close lens. Now let's look at some of the, some of the players within the state. Yeah. Um, you kind of want to go through that. Like, let's see, how can we get exposure to Arizona? Um, Totally. from the public markets. Yeah. So, you know, we can talk about the major players in Arizona, and then we can also talk about how they got there, you know, the sort of explosion in M&A that happened, yep. you know, before and after the 2020 election. And that's relevant because um, it's worth thinking through whether that might happen in places like Missouri and Ohio and other states going forward. Uh, so first, you know, the major players in Arizona, I think the big one is TrueLeave, uh, formerly Harvest. Um, you know, uh, TrueLeave obviously acquired a Harvest last year. And so Tr TrueLeave has 19 stores. I think 17 of them are open and a couple of them are still being built out. Um, and so, uh, first of all, what's interesting about that transaction is that transaction closed in five months, which I think, again, is just a testament, um, you know, to, to you know, obviously the strength of those companies, but, you know, how, how uh, you know, 
closing transactions quickly and you working with regulators is, is a good thing. So, um, you know, Tr- TrueLeap has 19 stores. Um, it, it seems obvious that, you know, Kim Rivers really loves Arizona and wants to invest further in, in branded products there and thinks of Arizona as part of their sort of hub and, and spoke strategy. And so they're, they're sort of the, the big operator there. And it'll be interesting to see how they invest in brands in Arizona, you know, what parts of the Harvest portfolio they keep and, and, and what parts of the TrueLeaf brand portfolio they add. Um, I also think it'll be interesting, you know, just as we're talking about TrueLeaf, um, to think about how that hub carries into California. Um, you know, we talk often about how many MSOs stay out of California. But, you know, one thing to note is that after the Harvest acquisition, uh, TrueLeaf actually has a, a pretty decent uh, SoCal portfolio. You know, they, they have mm-hmm. their old store in Palm Springs, but they also have um, the store in Venice, not too far from, from where I live. Um, you know, a store in Pasadena that is a very limited licensed city that is coming online next year. Um, a store um, in Santa Monica that um, could could come online um, later this year um, and, you know, a store in Grover Beach. And so I just think it'll be interesting to watch the interplay between Arizona and California. We're seeing some like pr- cross pollination with Venom Extracts, a, a, you know, a big Arizona brand moving into California and, and a company like Sublime that was acquired by Harborside. And so it'll be interesting to me to see to what extent truly, you know, decides to engage further uh, with California. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so TrueLeaf is 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 the the big player, um, and then another is CureLeaf, um, which uh, has uh, you know sixteen stores in the state, and you know Boris Jordan again seems to to really like um, Arizona, and I mean we can just look at their their recent M and A, you know their their acquisition of of Bloom. And, you know, I, I give them a lot of credit because, you know, they did a lot of acquisitions in Arizona back in summer 2019 when few people were paying attention to Arizona. But those who were understood that it was going to have a ballot initiative and that those licenses were, were going to be valuable. And so I think, you know, they were able to obtain a lot of those assets at, at a better price. Uh, so, you know, CureLeaf and then, you know, a few other players that, that we would recognize as, as MSOs uh, in the space. There's uh, Verano, um, which has its uh, six stores uh, there. Um, and Air, which has four stores, uh, and then you know Columbia Care uh, has two, and, and Cresco has one. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So just just to re just to uh, recap that you got Truly with the with the largest footprint there. You got Curly, Ferrano, Ayr, Columbia Care, and Cresco as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And and so yeah. you know uh, uh, it'll be interesting to think about whether the same M and A. You know, you know, Verano made a bunch of acquisitions following the you know in the months following the election. Um, Trulieve obviously acquired Harvest the year following the election. Curaleaf made a lot of acquisitions both in for and after the election. Whether that'll happen in states like Ohio um, and Missouri going forward. Yeah, yeah, and I and I know each state has their own sort of um, you know uniqueness more or less. Like I, I don't know, I've heard I've heard about Missouri and I've heard about Ohio as well. So it, it'll be really interesting to see kind of what's what is next for there. Um, are there any like, n- like notable non MSOs uh, out, out in, in Arizona, like maybe not like single single state operators, but people out there who are more local to Arizona? Yeah, you know, there, there are a bunch of uh, local Arizona operators. And I think some of these might be future uh, M&A targets. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. a company called Copper State Farms. Um, you know, which which has five stores and and has a very uh, strong um, you know sort of consumer following. Um, and uh, you know, there's a couple others like the Flower Shop and Mint that have three uh, licenses each. And so you know, these are these are strong operators. I would think of them similar to like an Oasis that Air acquired um, back in November uh, 2020. And I think there could be, they could be future M um, and A targets. 
and in, in terms of public companies, um, you know, Vex Science is a, you know, a pretty interesting company um, in, in Arizona. They uh, have a couple of stores and they also have a, a really popular um, sort of like vaping brand um, as well that's on a lot of shelves uh, in mm-hmm. the state. So, uh, yeah, a, a lot of those more boutique operators uh, in the state as well, although, you know, um, the, uh, the, the, the bigger operators have a, a, a significant part of the market share. Gotcha. I noticed when you were talking about all these assets, whether it was like the the, the non MSOs or the MSOs, you always alluded to the stores. Um, typically, whenever I look at you know assets within a a state, I look at the growth first, right? Like how much, did, like you know, how how big is their cultivation? Is there a reason that for Arizona you focus more on the store? That's just because you know they 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 describe their license as a dispensary license, and so some of these stores right may have built out associated you know cultivation manufacturing with them, and others may not. But you're you're totally gotcha. right that yeah you know these these are companies that have assets often across um, the supply chain and have brands in addition to having uh, retail dispensaries. Right, right. And then again, remember, we also talked that we could have wholesale in Arizona as well, which means that maybe, you know, these, uh, all these stores, they don't have to just sell just their product, they can buy other people's products and sell, mm-hmm. sell it within their storefronts mm-hmm. too, right? Yep. Yeah, which is which is pretty cool. And that kind of leads to um, our segues very nicely into brands, right? Brands is something that's becoming more and more topical within um uh, with w- within cannabis, right? We're we're seeing it. You know, we've we've heard the conversation for for quite some time now, uh, but now I think that there's actually some meat on the bones for these brands, right? Like Venom Extracts, Dizzy Cookies, like those are like actual names that people recognize and understand what like sort of what they are, right? Um, so, do you want to talk a little bit about the brands in in Arizona? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few that I think are, are worth highlighting. Um, one is Venom Extracts, um, which is part of what used to be called um, Hollister. And is now called Your. Um, and so, what's just notable about Venom Extracts is, you know, they've just had explosive sales uh, throughout 2020 and, and much of 2021. And you know, they they have a concentrate that you know accounts for you know 25 to 30 percent of, of category sales in the state. And again, you know, they're a company that also is trying to make moves in, in California as well. And so, I think it'll be interesting to see that cross pollination, you know, between Arizona and, and say Southern California in particular. So. Um, they're, they're a very well-known brand. Um, there's also Item 9 Labs, uh, which is a public company. And so, you know, uh, LeafLink considers them one of the most in-demand brands at, you know, many of the dispensaries um, in the state. And, um, you know, they have vapes and, and concentrates and are also building out, you know, one of the you know, biggest cultivation facilities in the state. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. that's one worth uh, paying attention to. Um, and then, uh, you know, another is, is Sunday Goods, um, which, you know, is a retailer, uh, but obviously, uh, or also uh, has a really popular uh, sun-grown uh, cannabis brand. So those are some of the uh, the bigger sellers in the market. Gotcha. Gotcha. Item 9 Labs, that's a hilarious name. I don't know if you've ever seen Pineapple Express, but that's what they call it. <laughs> when Bill Hader, yeah. in the opening scene, that's what he calls it. He's like, Item 9. Just hilarious. Every time I hear that, I always think about that. Um, so, I mean, like, look, we, we've really covered... I think all the bases in, in Arizona, um, before we talk about the growth drivers, I just have one question for you in terms of product mix. We didn't really talk about like, what do, like, what products are selling in, in Arizona? Like, is it typical of like every other, um, or not every other, but most states where it's like 50% flour, like 30 to 40% concentrates. Uh, and then, um, well, I guess not concentrates, but like, but vapes and then a breakdown of edibles, pre-rolls, et cetera. Like mm-hmm. what does that breakdown look like? Yeah. It's not meaningfully different than it is in other states, you know, with flour obviously being the, the biggest category and the most popular and then, you know, concentrates, uh, coming next. So pretty simple. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, um, yeah, let's talk about these, these growth drivers. 
So, you know, we've we've outlined sort of why Arizona has been great so far. Obviously, we can't go back 12 months from now and start investing in these companies. We can only look forward. So, you know, here we are today. It's Sunday or sorry, it's Saturday today. Typically, we record on a Sunday, but Saturday, February 5th. Um, you know, what what type of future growth drivers do you anticipate for Arizona? Yeah, I think this is always the interesting question to ask because, you know, the markets that are exciting in cannabis change very quickly and um, whether mm-hmm. a market is exciting, you know, may change. And so I think there are, are a few growth uh, drivers here. So the first is the 39 more licenses that the state um, is, some of which they've issued and some of which they will issued. And so many of those will, will come online in, in 2023. And so the state will go from you know, 130 to 169 um, licenses. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, 13 of those will go to underserved um, areas. And so, uh, you know, I think these will be big growth drivers or, you know, will be growth drivers for the market and could also potentially set off a new cycle um, of M&A in the future. So that's something to watch, you know, when it comes to out-of-state players trying to enter the market. So that's one, Mm -hmm. just more more businesses open. Uh, The second is delivery. And so what's interesting is that Arizona actually has a law that prohibits cannabis delivery until 2023. Um, But the state will likely pass um, a law next year that allows uh, for delivery in some form. And so I think that'll be a a pretty big growth driver. And as is often said, you know, delivery is an increasingly common way for people to receive their cannabis. Arizona is a big state and in, you know, it's rural in many pieces and in many parts of it. And so um, I think delivery will also so uh, be a, a big growth driver. Um, and also, you know, just the, the more permissive regulatory environment in Arizona, I think will lead to more innovation and faster innovation. So, you know, one example is the company uh, Sunday Goods recently opened up a drive through right, um, in their Tempe location. And so I think you're going to see things like that that make legal sales e- easier. And that's not something that you're likely to see in a state like California that has a much more button up regulatory culture. So I think things like that can be can be growth drivers. And, um, you know, in addition to that, you know, I could see Arizona on authorizing lounges and not just doing so in name, um, but also mm-hmm. implementing that quickly, um, you know, unlike as is done in other states. So um, I think those are some of the the, um, the growth drivers that Arizona has going forward. Gotcha. Gotcha. That the, the, Those those seem to be like pretty, they, they, they make sense. I mean, for the delivery there, do you think there's going to be a new license or do you think they're just going to say, because like, I don't think they'd add a new license to that, right? Like they're probably just going to say, hey, all the people who have existing licenses, you can now deliver. Yeah, you know, we'll have to see. That's that's generally one of the fights that happens in these markets. You know, what we are seeing in many markets like Massachusetts and Colorado and other markets is that delivery is seen as a way to broaden participation in the market. And so mm-hmm. in some of these states, those licenses are reserved exclusively for new entrants for some period of time. Um, I think we're probably going to see a mixture of that in Arizona where existing operators can deliver, um, but also they issue new licenses to just enable more participation in the industry. But I, I do think that this is, you know, sometimes retailers, um, you know, brick and mortar retailers uh, get nervous about delivery because they think of it as eating into you know their business. But I do think mm-hmm. on the whole, just the more access points we can create for cannabis, legal cannabis, um, just the more it benefits the industry overall. So yeah, and and I I think delivery really makes sense for a licensing structure similar to what to, to what Arizona has because um, especially with that leasing thing, like you know, um, imagine if you if you just leased. A part of a license and then all of a sudden you got to piggyback on a, on a delivery license as well right um you know my brain's just sort of thinking about where where things can go with arizona and it seems pretty exciting man it seems like really exciting yeah i, I absolutely and i i think um I, again i think the, the larger goal for this conversation or what's interesting about it is we're seeing more experiments unfold in different states about how to regulate cannabis and can compare their results and you know the, the more that we adopt those lessons in other states just the bigger and better the cannabis industry uh, is going to be
So. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, look, Hirsch, I think we covered everything that we really need to cover about Arizona. Um, you know, sales numbers look really good. License structure is really great. Taxation is fantastic. The uniqueness of the regulators working with the entrepreneurs was, was, was pretty cool. Um, the, the people who are, who are in there and the growth drivers that are there, like this is, I'll be honest, you know, the, the last month or so in the cannabis sector has kind of been like doom and gloom, but this is sort of, um, a ray of sun, I guess, you know, in what we've sort of done with, uh, or, or sort of what we've sort of seen in cannabis lately. Yeah, it's it's nice to see certain industries having success, and then the question is like, how do we take that, um, and you know, where can we apply it in in other states? And you know, I'll, I'll just say, you know, I, I think we have to recognize that the political culture um, in states is different. Dates, you know, states have different policy goals, and so the way that other states are going to implement cannabis is not going to look like Arizona. Um, but I don't think um, anyone is saying that everyone has to do, you know what Arizona did, but there certainly yeah. are some lessons there that can be applicable. So even if other states have different policy goals around, you know, equity and participation, are there lessons we can learn from Arizona that allow us to actually reach those goals instead of passing a law that talks about how important those goals are, but in practice doesn't achieve those goals? For sure. For sure. And look, even just with this brief discussion that I've had with you, um, the one of the the, the key takeaway from this for me at least is the speed to market right like it, you you can have different like, I, you know we, we talked about the licensing structure we kind of went uh, really deep into it you can have different types of licensing structures but for the for the other states to really sort of replicate the success that Arizona has I think you hit it on the head when you said speed to market so and and, and just the inverse about of that is that cannabis is obviously a very capital intensive industry and so when you don't have speed to market you generally disadvantage people without a lot of capital right that can't afford mm-hmm. to wait around for years to operate a business. So there's a link between speed to market and participation and equity in cannabis, but we just don't really make that link in, in the discourse on cannabis as often as we should. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and this kind of brings our episode to a wrap over here. Um, I mean, Hirsch, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for doing this, this thorough dive into, into Arizona, or at least just sort of walking me through everything. Um, this is definitely something that I'm going to look more into. Um, and you know, if you guys have any questions, feel free to email us at cinpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach out to, uh, Hirsch directly as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, until next time, guys, thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Abby. Thanks guys. Thanks. Oh, I'm just going to hit stop here. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decision, an investor should seek individualized advice from from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.